Hi, I'm Carlos, co-founder of the Happy Startup School, and welcome to our Happy Startup Community Podcast. Along this journey of building the Happy Startup School, I've had the privilege of meeting amazing people from around the world. Whether it was across a banqueting table at our summer camp festival, or sat at a beach cafe in Goa during one of our retreats, each of them had fascinating stories to tell and interesting ideas to share that have changed how I look at business and life. This podcast is my effort to share these conversations with you and to open up your horizons to new perspectives and ways of viewing the world. I hope that they become a source of inspiration, learning and connection. Enjoy. Alan is a business coach and mentor on a mission to help and empower as many entrepreneurs as he can. He focuses on owner-managed businesses that want to scale up and he's been an amazing support for myself and Lawrence. On a previous episode, Alan and I discussed the idea of building a minimum viable audience, essentially gathering people around you that really love what you do. While many early stage entrepreneurs just think about scaling up from the beginning, the MVA approach is about first niching down and getting really focused on who you want to serve. One aspect of this is to think about demographics and targeting your audience based on traits like age, geography, education, gender, and income. This helps you define who you want to appeal to. However, to understand what motivates and moves these people, you also need to think about psychographics and explore their needs, wants, and behaviors. Understanding why people really want what you offer will help you communicate what you do in a much more effective and engaging way. By putting out the right messages, you won't have to go and hunt for them. Your customers will be looking for you. So listen to find out more and enjoy. I feel like a proper Zoom noob now that you're schooling me in the art of... <laughs> I found it accidentally. <laughs> so we're, what are we talking about? We're, we are following on from what I remember, a conversation around the idea of a minimum viable audience. Yes, exactly. And so um, that got us onto this... Uh, well, you, you came up with the the... the the topic of psychographics. Yeah. Uh, and so this episode uh, of sitting with the infinite consciousness that is Alan Wick. <laughs> and not. <laughs> we're going to explore this idea of uh, psychographics. And so I think why I thought we'd start off with for people who, who have no idea what psychographics are is maybe you could give us um your rundown of psychographics and 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 then how that compares with the idea of demographics. Well, I'd like to start by saying that I am by no means an expert on either psychographics or demographics. It's not something I've made a study of. I don't consider myself a marketing expert. I understand these things to the extent that they help um, the businesses I work with, which are all owner-managed businesses. Uh, if they're at startup stage, then understanding the people that they're going to be selling to. If they're an existing business um, and they want to grow or scale, then getting a, a better understanding of the people that they want to sell their uh, services or products to. And um, I, I've sort of known about demographics for decades. I think most, most people have heard of it. And demographics is really about um, who people are. They're, they're uh, quite scientific. They're quite um, uh, real, hard, you know, man, woman, age, where somebody lives, perhaps their level of education, income, that type of thing. Psychographics, certainly from my perspective, is something fairly new. I don't know, maybe it's been around a long time, but it's, I think it's newer. And it's the idea of understanding why people buy something, which means having to understand softer things like their beliefs, um, their interests, those, those sorts of things. That's my understanding of the difference. And so within the, your context, and like you say, you, you coach uh, owner-managed companies, um, 
at what point have you felt the need to start talking to people about psychographics? What is it they, they've been struggling with or, or been trying to do? You said about scaling up, but what is it specifically that made you think, okay, we need to talk this language? Um, it's any need for a business to grow its top line for any reason. By top line, I mean revenues, sales, whether it's pre-revenue, starting up, early stage, uh, or, or well-established. If a business says, or an owner, owners say to me, Alan, we'd like your help, that we want to increase our revenues, then my questions are going to be around what are they selling? What are their products and services? Tell me more. Um, I'm going to want to know about pricing. I'm going to want to know about positioning. What are they known for? What's their brand, service or product known for uh, in the market? And I'm going to ask them about how well they understand who they're selling to. So it's part of many questions I would ask before um, knowing how to help them if they want to grow their sales or get their sales going for that matter from scratch. Mm. And uh, I can imagine, well, I've heard it told to me a lot of the time they will say it's uh, millennials or 25 to 35 year olds working in the uh, finance industry or even worse, everyone, because everyone can use my product. And this is where I assume you would get wanting them to get the much more specific. Yes. And, and in, that links back to our last discussion and this concept of the minimum viable audience, that if it's a startup or early stage, then instead of being for everyone, um, think about what type of people and how many do you need to buy into your product or service to give you a viable business. Um, and by, by definition, you need to understand what your audience or target market, to use the vernacular, what their needs are. Another piece of language is pain points. What do they have a need for? Um, what are they concerned about? What do they enjoy? Um, so for example, you could look at a, a, a you know, group of people that uh, love radio controlled cars just as an example and they may be all standing there and they've got their cars running around a field and you might see people from all walks of life of all both genders or these days i suppose all genders ages income levels clothes whatever um and um education but what they've got an, an interest in a common interest in that example is radio controlled cars so if you want to sell something to them it's no good using demographics alone so for me it's not either or it gives another tool in addition to demographics that's really useful together with it in terms of understanding who it is your product to services are for so it's um it i would say well what what came up for me was the idea it's also product dependent because i know there's not a massive market for mini skirts in the 50 to 60 age range um but you never know well there is in forest row <laughs> but on the flip side i was i was thinking of our happy startup homeschool so when we this was the first ever online program we did at the happy startup school if we took a very strictly demographic approach um, we would say okay we're probably younger maybe 25 35 maybe a bit younger 20 to 35 um, early stage businesses uh, trying to build a digital business for instance get really specific there what we did find though is we had a whole broad range of people who ended up going onto that um, program from of different ages, different uh, businesses. Um, we even had someone who ended up coming to our altitude retreat who started the startup program, even though they had a hundred person company and they were, they were 45 uh, and they lived in India. And so 
while we thought or while you could put this this demographic approach onto um to building that product or that that course actually it was very much more about what what they wanted to achieve a, a need or a question they had not so much uh, an age and an industry mm. that's how how i would interpret it from my context yes and and i'd also make a distinction between what i call the tip of the arrow versus people who come along because there's enough in common with what the service or the product is and by the tip of the arrow i'm talking about the very sharp end of the arrow before and what the target is that it's aiming at mm. and that that's the way in my view to break into a market or to grow an existing business whether it's a hundred person or it's a startup so getting very sharp another analogy uh, that i use is to do with fly fishing fishing for trout those people that don't know unlike any other form of fishing you can usually see the fish you want to catch. It's, it's a few meters away in beautifully clear water, and they're very lazy that trout will be sitting there in the shade, nice summer's day. You can actually see it, and the idea is to land exactly the right date, an inch or two in front of the, the trout's mouth, so that all the trout has to do is to lunge forward an inch or two and bite. Uh, but the bait has to be exactly right for that particular trout and it has to land exactly in front of it. With that kind of analogy, and this applies particularly to B2B products or services, but in my view, increasingly to B2C, where there's mass customization going on, things that are more and more um, uh, attractive for narrower groups of people. Um, that understanding means that you're going to choose the fish. So I've just used a trout. Wonder if you want to catch uh, a marlin or a shark or something else that's totally different. You'd use a completely different technique and different bait, uh, different size hook to catch that those different types of fish. So by understanding the beliefs and the and the ideas, the the needs, the pain points, what exact benefits my target market want the more i can speak their language the more i believe i'm going to be able to attract them to buying my product or service so um so thinking back to your tip of the arrow analogy there's a fear that i've encountered with people when you when you ask them to be more specific about who they're targeting the that they will essentially lose a lot of customers or there's a lot of missed opportunity. Um, and when you talk about uh, tailored um, offerings in the B2B market, that's, you can rationalize that maybe in my head because you could, that could be quite a high ticket offering. And so as long as you capture one shark, then you're good for a couple of months. Um, what do you say to someone who's actually got, oh, no, I can't be so specific and so tailored or or so rigorous in being clear about who this is for because I might lose out on these other people? Be brave. Mm. Yeah. And, and, then, and then to give them confidence um, that by being brave and being more specific and being more targeted – now, of course, this goes with knowing the market. Of course, if there's only one person or one business that's going to buy it, and that's that, that's ridiculous. I'm not suggesting that for a moment. I'm talking about balancing it with understanding the numbers of businesses or people that want that particular product or service. And for now, for this part of the discussion i have to assume uh, as is the case in every business i've ever come across that i've had this conversation with that there is enough of a need to keep them going for years and to enable them to to have a, a very growing healthy profitable business by focusing on those uh, individuals or those businesses and, and then the second piece is that there is a differential between who you're targeting 
and who might come along. And you, you just gave a great example of that with Altitude. You said you targeted startups, early stage, and along came uh, someone with a 100-person company that got a lot of value out of it. So I'm not saying, therefore, you don't do business with all these other people. By all means, if they come along, you're not going to turn them away. Well, you might turn some of them away. But who are you targeting is different from who you end up doing business with. Those are two separate decisions. Uh, it's that perception of fear yes. that I see people. This perception of like uh, yes, yes. scarcity, that if I yes. do this, then I'm going to have even less than I've got at the moment. I agree. It's a common fear, and I've, I've had it with every single conversation of this type with all sorts of sizes of business over many years the same and all I can say is that every time uh, a business has done this positioning work it, it links inextricably with positioning I've seen a minimum of 20% increase and sometimes up to a 40% increase in sales uh, even when they're well-established businesses and even better uh, at increased gross margins um, let's take a really e easy example. If I talk about me, I'm particular, you know, I'm five foot six, I'm slim. I find clothes very difficult to find things that fit me. So if I find a brand that makes something that fits me exactly and I don't have to worry about, it, I don't have to go through racks of stuff, am I going to pay extra for that? And the answer is yes, I'll pay extra for that. If you take... Um, my wife, for example, does yoga for pregnant women, pre-post-pregnancy, called yoga birth. So by definition, she's going after a very specific target market, but she's an expert in that. So her language, her website, her positioning, the people that are attracted to come to her and then tell others about her will say, you must see Ruth Polden, she's expert in pregnancy. Now, does that mean if there are only six pregnant women, that would be ridiculous. But there's a constant stream, obviously, of people, of women becoming pregnant. So she's got endless work. Mm. And you, can, you can use that example, I believe, in any business of any type. I think it's that uh, particularly... I don't know if it's particularly for early stage or new type, new founders. There's this idea of you know I, there's a an X percentage of this huge market that I can capture, and so I need to spread my net as wide as possible so I can capture as many of them. Uh, against this idea of that, actually, if you've got such a clear message, it becomes such a bright beacon for a particular set of people. The amount of time and energy it will take to turn them from a aware to a customer is going to be a lot less because Correct. of your focused messaging. Perfect. That's it. That, that's what I meant by the tip of the arrow. Imagining that the market is a wall that you've got to break through. And given Happy Startups members in the main are early stage pre-revenue, you know, wannapreneurs or early stage or um, limited resources that's the point i'm getting to they don't have hundreds of thousands of pounds or millions of pounds to throw at something and some of it sticks they've got to watch every penny and more importantly how many conversations have we had with community members who are worried about their energy and they seem to be burning out that's usually because they're trying to do too many things for too many people at too lower margin at too low price whereas the correct approach and i rarely use a language that's judgmental like correct as opposed to a matter of opinion so i'm going to stick my neck out here the correct approach is to go narrow and targeted at a price that gives a profit each time that service or product is sold and stick to it it does take bravery but i believe with the right support that's that will get the results with less energy uh, well i think using correct is perfectly valid um, when you're working with people with finite time energy and resources you can't you don't have the luxury of of trying lots of different things all the time yeah, exactly
so um i hope anyone listening to this now has got got the message now you know being very specific and very clear about who you want to work with is important um demographics is one way of defining who that person is so if they were going to add this uh str another string to their bow <laughs> going down the arrow route um what how would they use psychographics and your experience and, and the way you've worked with your clients how would you advise them to think about psychographics um it's absolutely essential to look at my company so to speak from the outside in that's the hardest bit don't we all look at the world from the inside out aren't we all really excited about our products or services and purpose-led businesses are genuinely wanting their services products to do good in the world and the money is applause in typically they'll get satisfaction from people who really benefit from their products and services and that means i believe we all naturally focus on the features on the, what we do and the detail of what we do how many websites how much language have i seen hundreds and hundreds thousands of websites and sales language it's all about the feature features of what it is i do and the detail i'm so excited about it i've got to tell you about it people buy benefits though they buy what's in it for them we all do so the only way to do that is to look from the outside in and again giving a kind of correct incorrect analogy i've never seen anybody even a big company with marketing departments that's got lots of money and they say well we've got a marketing department they're used to doing market surveys they can do a, a um, an analysis of the competitive marketplace and and tell us what people think of us from the outside in and it never works and even with a tiny budget of hundreds or maybe possibly a few thousand but even with hundreds or friends however it's done it's crucial to get somebody who is not connected with our business to do a competitor analysis a competitor landscape through the lens of psychographics and demographics so that what they come back with is an objective view of somebody who's in the market for that type of service or product who's googling for that type of service or product and what is the need what is the language that they the buyers or potential buyers are interpreting things through and then another key aspect of it is not just the beliefs and so on aspirations but is it something they're buying that this is the buyers for our products or services mainly because it's a benefit to them or are they trying to uh, find a solution for a pain so is it benefit or, pe or or some kind of so i go i've got a headache i want to get rid of the headache i buy an aspirin or paracetamol that's totally different from looking for a holiday i'm in a different frame of mind so if you combine all that together and there's some incredibly good work that you can find on the internet you then come up with something that may sound really weird but it works believe me called pain point personas so you give somebody a name I'll, I'll just use a bank as an example and there's somebody like Carla they'll say Carla and Carla um, is mass market they've got you know 20 30 40 thousand pounds worth of investable assets they've got x amount of confidence in money how do they feel about tech what kind of brands do they like netflix amazon nike coffee costa coffee what do they like what are their financial outlook how many digital devices are they likely to have what are they looking for if you're a bank what are they looking for to do with their money a safe home or something to invest and they'll build up an entire picture of this individual and they may say that this is cautious Carla I'm just making it up for now and 
in, in my case, I did an analysis with help of an outside research person who didn't charge a lot. It was a few days work. And I got a whole list of things that people needed, depending on what stage of the business journey they were in. So do they need finance 101? Do they understand a P&L and balance sheet? Probably not if they're just starting up, but they've got an understanding of it if they're already, they've already got a sizable business. And then there are 50 or 60 uh, um, pain points, as they're called, or needs, and you build up a picture, and then you can decide, right, with that knowledge, and then knowing where my competitors are positioned, I can then choose what I want to put on my hook, what bait do I want to put on my hook for which fish? And that's the key. And then, you've, then you're really focused and going after that particular fish day in, day out, day in, day out. And then once you've got one, another similar one, another similar one, and that builds up the minimum viable audience. And it's much less effort and much more focused. Mm. So I'm going to play devil's advocate here. Not in the sense that whatever you're saying is, isn't true. I think it, it makes complete sense to me. And I think it's, 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 it's fundamental to, to getting clarity um, as a business owner to, as to who you're serving. Um, the first thing I, I, I'm guessing that people will think as they're listening to this is, oh my gosh, that's a lot of work. <laughs> oh my God, there's a, that's a lot of, a lot of things to think about. And, and when do I reap the benefits of all this effort? That's one thing. And so I think of, um, I think the, the psychologist is BJ Fogg and he had this formula for uh, behavior change. Um, and behavior, as, as I remember, behavior equals motivation mm. times ability mm. times trigger. Mm. And so I feel that, you know, the person I, that we're trying to talk to here is like what you said, they're an early, either an early stage entrepreneur trying to think, out, okay, how am I going to actually start making this business sustainable? Mm. Or they are in the midst of growing their business and they're pulling lots of levers and triggers and just going around in circles. And what our mission here is to create that behavior. So through the lens of motivation, ability, and trigger, I, I can imagine the motivation of some people just dropping because, oh my God, well, 50, 60 pain points, analyzing those pain points, breaking that down, thinking about who. So if we were going to speak to increasing that motivation, what would you do to say, what would you say to them to say, all right, you know, this is really, this is, this is exciting. This is going to make you, or this is going to motivate you to do something here. Yeah. On the basis that any getting any kind of change in us human beings who, who all want to stick within our comfort zone zones is always going to be about a benefit for them that they, mm. they believe in or the avoidance of something terrible happening that they mm. can, see happening or in that they're in the middle of it and there's a, a little bit of a, a um a question here about who are we talking to because i don't think i've ever come across a situation where this can be sold to somebody mm. persuaded that you can walk in to a business and come in holding this information and this kind of all that we talked about and say, I'd like you to buy one of these. I think this has to come in my experience from enough of a pain or enough of a, I sense there's a benefit, but I'm just not quite sure how to go about it. And then somebody is in a state of inquiry. And as long as they're in that state of inquiry and they're open to ideas, this is one very good option. It may not be the only one. It could be that they need better salespeople. It could be that by lowering the price or increasing the price or painting it from red to black, whatever it is, 
it'll help or moving the office from one city to another. There could be other solutions, but typically if business owners are either in stress because they are going round in circles on a hamster wheel and going mad 80 hours a week and nothing's happening, trying to sell to everybody, something's got to change. They will usually at least listen to this. And if I can get them to come off the racing, uh, um, off the racetrack and come into the pits for just a little while and convince them that by doing this work, they will be able to slow down and have a nice, a happier life, they'll do the work. They will invest the time. And yes, I did make it sound more towards the complicated end of it because I was explaining what's possible. You don't have to go into that much detail, but at least having some of that stuff and bringing it into a business is going to help sharpen that business, sharpen that business focus. So it's usually aware people that want to change and this is an option. Mm. No, that's great. And I think why when you were talking about the 80 hour weeks and um, struggling to sell to everyone, if we could flip that picture and say, can imagine walking up to people and because you, they're the right people, you don't even have to do much. You just say, this is what I have. And they immediately say, thank you. That's what I needed to be able to live like that week on week and to feel like what you are creating is a value to real deep value to people. That feels like something motivating to, to get to a place in that, that kind of existence as a business owner. There's more. <laughs> oh, there's more. Oh, even more. Come on, Alan. I'm going beyond that, Carlos. It's not about walking up to people and this is what they need. They will come to me. Mm. It's enough of a magnet. We're sending out the right message that others are telling others. Yes. Because like-minded people <clears throat> are telling their friends and their colleagues that they've discovered whatever that service or product is. And look what it did for me. It can do the same for you. So it all becomes a virtuous circle rather than a vicious circle. Let's look at, go right to the other extreme and look at what makes Nike, Nike, Apple, Apple, those absolute best brands that we are attracted to emotionally. For some reason, there's something pulling us, even though it's just a metal and a computer and it's a shoe. It's because they've got their messaging absolutely spot on they've got their the way they present themselves consistently day in day out day in day out and over decades they built up one once upon a time they had their minimum viable audience starbucks all these global brands once upon a time they had one coffee shop or one computer they had to have their advocates and they were like me and then it grew from there and then they we're attracted to them or the, the people they want to do business are attracted to them. And we pay a ridiculous amount for a coffee or for a computer or for a shoe because we want we just something psychological, emotional. There's an emotional attachment to those brands. Mm. And so I think that's the place where a lot of people, particularly in our community, we love to get to because the picture that I have of these people some of my members they they want they have this need to create and so it's like you said it's very much inside out approach they 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 have this kind of i like the way i phrase it is the artist's way mm. i have this energy the thing to and it's coming from inside i want to make it mm. i want to and i want to create mm. but i want these creations to be loved mm. and i i neglect the fact that i need to communicate the beauty of this thing in a way that other people understand. Mm. And so the work of the outside in, as I understand it, is by a understanding who this could be really cherished by and using their language and using the, the aspirations, needs, goals that they articulate and relating that to the thing that I create from the inside out, that will be a lot more effortless way of existing than the struggling artist who is just 
creating things but seems to not connect or it's not being seen by the right people because they don't they're not communicating it or not in a horrible way selling it in inverted commas but in a way getting it in front of the people who will really love that stuff i think you're getting to a real nub of it because i'm not for a moment saying that purpose-led business owners need to do anything other than stick to their values and the artisan who's loving what they're making shouldn't stick to that i'm absolutely saying do that stick to it stick to what you love their values what i'm saying is i'm adding something not taking anything away and the best businesses that are the most sustainable have a balance between inside out and outside in it's like two venn diagrams that meet beautifully in the middle and what most artisan type businesses in my experience lack or they, or they just don't know that it's important. They just don't know what they don't know in a way. In a way hmm. is the outside-in view added to what they're doing gives the perfect circle, then the perfect, you know, the a, a virtuous circle hmm. of demand, I... need, and, and so on. A, a, a very good example of this, I think, is is what I do. I could talk for hours about some of the frameworks and the colors and the diagrams and the books and the documentation for hours. Nobody buys coaching. That is not what anyone buys. They're buying increased profit, you know, more money, or they're buying less stress, or they're buying more time at home, or maybe all three or two of them. So, okay, they may or may not be interested in how I do it or what the docs in the documentation or the frameworks, but unless they're convinced they're going to get one of those three or a combination of them, why on earth would they buy coaching hmm. or my services? Irre irrelevant. So when so uh, Carrie Beddingfield, uh, who we both are friends of ours, uh, who, who share a lot of our beliefs, has a lovely phrase for this. She says, the pain we're seeking to solve isn't the pain we think we're solving. <laughs> pain we're, think we're seeking to solve isn't the pain we think we're solving. How would you translate that? The same as I've been saying, that if, if we're just looking at it from our point of view outwards, that's not, a, that's not enough. You've got to understand the person who's buying it why they're buying it so, look if you want to tell the time you can spend ten dollars this is a lovely seth godin trope you can buy ten dollars for a watch pay ten dollars for a watch that's all you need to spend to buy that so why do people spend hundreds or thousands of pounds on a watch it is not to tell the time it's for something else to be seen in a certain way, to be part of a certain crowd, to show that they've got money, that they're successful, a million things, but it's not to tell the time. So it's no good a Rolex going on and on and on and on about how all the mechanisms stick to the nearest second. They're selling aspiration. Rolex goes with Fedra and all these other people, they've done it for decades. Depends what it is you're selling. And so this is where I think it comes back to um, the, you're talking earlier, you're talking about values yeah. and being clear about those values, because those are the values that, um, those are the values that create added value <laughs> for want of a better phrase. Cause you were saying there's like the values that a Rolex, the, the company has uh, and the values that Roger Federer has is what increases the value to an to a potential customer of that watch because they want to have those values and they want to aspire to be that kind of person or have that kind of lifestyle or that kind of image. Mm. And so through this work of understanding the not only the functional needs and in terms of like the features and the benefits but also the values needs, the aspirations. And this is where it comes, I think that you're talking about with psychographics. Um, with those, with that understanding of the language they use around it, not only will you connect 
with the customers that you that will uh, want your product, but also what I'm hearing there is you could potentially increase the value, the intrinsic value of what you offer because of that. Absolutely. Yes. And that's what, as a as a entrepreneur who who seems to, and I've seen this actually when we were developing apps and um, and platforms for clients, they would think more value was more features. Okay, so they're not buying. Maybe we need to add more features and more bits and widgets, and and that's what would be the product would be. It's like let's put lots and lots of stuff into here. But what we're saying here is actually stop. Don't add. Don't add stuff. Add stories. Add the an understanding of who it is that you're trying to work or serve, and what what their worldview is. Both. It's getting the the reason that I believe those clients would have been asking that business when you owned it for more features is that if they're techies and they come up with a brilliant way of, of doing a feature no one else has done, they get excited, it is new, it is different, um, and they want to add it. I get that. And if they don't know what it is that their target market needs for that particular purpose, and they don't have a really good understanding of what they need, there's no judgment added to that decision as to whether it is a good thing or a bad thing to add the feature into the app. It's not there. It's lacking. It's like a blind spot. So asking, how do you know that your, your customers want that feature? Oh, well, it's just really good. It's really tech. It's amazing. That mm. isn't an answer. Now that's one part of it and the stories. So I, I want to use the term perfect storm, but it always feels like it can be a, it's a, a negative. Mm. In the virtuous circle, the, the best of both worlds, was when you've got exactly the right product or service for the right market, and the, it does what exactly what they need. That's my analogy of the right bait for that particular fish. And then with the story, with the genuine story, genuine values, that link with, the, again, the target market's belief. Now, I, I, I'm sorry, I'm going to use a negative example to show how powerful it is. But, you know, all the recent stuff over the last four or five years with Brexit and Trump and Cambridge Analytica and Facebook, that is when this stuff that we've been talking about throughout this podcast is used for, shall I call them... Uh, nefarious or political purposes because what was so powerful about that stuff is that because Cambridge Analytica had the demographic and psychographic information of Mrs. Miggins in 10 the high street in Manchester and knows that she likes knitting and know that she's undecided whether to vote for or against Brexit they will target exactly the right kind of ad with the right language about knitting. And then when they've got the person, Mrs. Miggins is saying, well, these, I like the look of these people. You know, they understand me. They like knitting. They then target Mrs. Miggins with messages about Brexit. And the, Trump used the same thing in America. And so it can be used for good or for ill. We, mm. of course, are talking about for good good services, good products that are meant to make the world a better place. Mm. Therefore, let's not, because we're doing that with a clean conscience, use these tools as well. Use these skills as well for good. Mm. So um, in preparation for this podcast, I, I put this document together. And one of the things was, I think we did touch on it earlier was who are we talking to? Who's the audience? And with you saying that it feels like we want to empower all those purpose driven entrepreneurs and purposeful products who are just hidden, who are struggling, who are not flourishing, who are unable to connect with the right people because right. they don't necessarily, they don't have the awareness of the tools that, that they could use to really um, push themselves forward yes and so 
uh, going back to my behavior equals motivation times ability times trigger, I feel like the motivation is what if you could effortlessly create your thing, your, your stuff, your purposeful business and people be attracted to you, come to you, how much of that would be a perfect world. And then this stuff isn't ridiculously hard or it doesn't have to be ridiculously hard. There are ways of doing this that you can start off with that are within your ability. And budget. And budget. So I thought we could touch on maybe a couple of things to, to make them feel that ability to, to mm. do this. So what, what would you suggest you know, to, to kickstart this, this journey? Um, I'm going to use, a, to begin with, Carlos, if this is, if this is okay, if this is relevant, mm-hmm. so an early stage business, perhaps it's been going a year or two, so it has some customers or mm-hmm. some clients. Good. It's already up and running. Yeah. Um, the first thing is to quiz them, is to talk to them. And that's why I think it's better that the owners or the people dealing with them don't do this. Now, this isn't about customer satisfaction. It's about asking a set of questions of them, either by phone calls or online or combinations or Google Forms, any method. Again, I'm thinking free, cheap, you know, or very little money. And through the lens of positioning, market service, product price. Okay. There's a lot about that on the internet, free, free resources. And they're going to come back with some, a list of attributes of those individual clients, some demographic and some psychographic. It's all about who is it who's already buying my services or products who already believes in what I do. I'm, I'm trying to learn about them in a way that I can get something down on paper. Mm. And that's free internet, Google psychographics, demographics that can be done with no money. I am advising if you know, somebody outside the, the company is gets much better results, but only because they can see things more objectively. It's mm. not about being the, getting not getting the truth. It's about objectivity from the outside in, so that whoever's doing the questioning is more with the, the people who are being questioned than from the inside out. It always skews the the results. Mm. Part one, with that information, they'll begin to be able to start languaging what it is they offer, going back to your artisan um, uh, example, so that the language around what they're doing becomes more recognizable and more easy to relate to by the people who they who want to buy that product or service by definition, because we've now got an understanding of those people that we didn't have before. Mm. Then the next free thing that can be done is SEO, basic SEO, understanding what are the search words. By definition, if we're questioning somebody who bought that product or service and likes it, why did you buy it? Or what you just are, well, why did you buy that? And you get an answer. And if you speak to six people or 10 people or a hundred, the more you speak to, the more you get something that is solid, from a statistical point of view. Mm. And then you are able to have language that is, you can put into your SEO and, and language of blogs or podcasts and the rest of it. And I haven't spent a penny just about, I might've spent a little bit of money, hundreds, maybe nothing. Mm. To get so, to that point. <clears throat> so the key things that, um, uh, sprung up for me firstly is um, get someone else not connected to the business to talk to your existing customers mm. um, so that they can um, pull out the language and the and the quality well the language they use to describe what you do uh, and the qualities that they perceive around what it is you do mm. in their own language and then 
the more you talk to people, the more of a pattern that you'll see. And the, there's yeah. something more solid you said, particularly statistically or language wise that you'll, you'll be able to spot. Um, I think another thing then that I was thinking of there is like doing that with curiosity rather than needing to say, okay, I need to get them to say this or hope I'm hoping they say this and they use exactly the same language that I use. Exactly. Being open to the fact that they might be using language you'd never even thought of. Exactly. And that's where the, the, the diamond might lie that you hadn't actually spotted. Yes. Exactly cool. that. And so either, and then this is the thing, maybe um, this is where there might be, you might require a little bit of investment or you have some kind of quid pro quo with someone to do this work for you. But mm -hmm. the most important thing I heard there is that if you try to do it yourself, you will be looking at the, listening to the words and looking at what they write down through your own lens mm. and you will interpret it in a way again, that might not be beneficial to mm. what you're trying to achieve. And we're talking a spectrum here, even doing it on your own is still better than not doing it. Yes. Right. It's not binary, but the best way to do it is not to do it yourself. And yeah, quid pro quo, typical, anybody curious or marketing person, uh, I mean, you know, post-grad, somebody bright who, who can um, ring up people and not embarrass you <laughs> and, and be friendly on the phone and professional. Or one of my clients did a, a, um, a, an online form, Google form, didn't cost mm. them anything, and sent it out to maybe 50 people. They got 20 or 30 replies, and that was all they needed. Yeah. So it can be super simple. We're not saying and that you need to get someone else to do it. Um, but any, any information mm. is going to be better than where you are at the moment. Correct. Excellent. And, um, and I think this is for me, the, the tackling this ability, this, you know, feeling that you can do this. Cause I think there's a, I can imagine a lot of people feeling, Oh, a it's data i have to accumulate data and I have to analyze it b we'll have to ask people what they think which just feels really um scary because what if they say something else that i don't like um uh and then it's and then what does it mean how do i use it that's the other thing i can think people say oh my god well, i don't know I've got all this information i don't know what to do with it but and so there are I think there is that a bit of resistance I can imagine people having, particularly I think around the, I don't, I, I, I don't want to hear what people might say that might be negative. But there, I think the word curiosity is the most important thing there. It's like, there might be something so valuable in this, in this exercise that you hadn't ever thought of. Yeah. And all of those concerns or objections are real. And, you know, one of my reactions to hearing you talk those through is if I'm doing my tough love coaching, mm -hmm. say, fine, then stay as you are. Yeah, exactly. And this is where the T of this whole thing, the trigger comes up for me. It's like n uh, the next time you wake up at three in the morning worried about how cash flow is going, the next time a client ends up uh cancelling on you and you then feel like oh my god next month is disaster or, or the next time you spend a load of money on marketing and nothing comes back then you've got to think okay and what am i doing here to change the situation mm. okay so i don't know how deep or philosophical you want to get in this conversation because so far it's been relatively practical but some people are addicted to that anxiety Mm. And what in your, so in your experience, what is it about that anxiety that they they crave or they they cling on to? Well, usually because there's been something in their experience, their upbringing, dare I say, their childhood, mm. where it's comfortable to be anxious, and they just they're repeating it, and they look and they recreate that until they forever, 
maybe, mm. or until they really don't want to anymore and they change. And in some cases, they may need help, you know, therapy or some sort of counseling that is beyond the scope of our conversation certainly as a coach. But honestly, that's happened. And there are times when that's come up. And it's amazing the number of very on the face of it successful businesses I've come across over the years, nearly 20 years doing this. I think a thousand businesses, somebody said recently, where they built up millions of pounds of turnover and they've got factories and offices and it's amazing. And yet you find they're somehow creating more and more anxiety, whether it's choices of partners, choices of staff, choices of customers being totally reliant on uh, you know very volatile uh, customer base or over reliant on one and you can add lots of zeros on or it can be a one-person band but that's the world they've created for themselves because that's what they're used to now if i'm there and i come in by definition uh, they've come to a point where they don't want it anymore they've got to change it or they wouldn't get somebody like me in in the first place. Yeah. And so then the question becomes, well, how, how do we change this? And is it a commercial thing, a discussion with the limit, up to the limit of my um, ability? Or do you need to go a bit deeper because there may be something causing that from early on? In some cases, some of my clients have actually gone to CBT or they've had different type of therapy. They've undone that stuff released it while we're working on the commercial stuff in the business in parallel. Mm. That's been incredible to see people go through that. It's very deep. And now, I'm glad you brought that up actually, because you know, part of what I believe the happy startup school is about, it isn't just about the strategies and the tactics because you can give those till the cows come home to people, but it's the, the fundamental beliefs as to what I think and what you're saying, what success means to them. Yeah. And if success means anxiety and uncertainty and being always on the edge, then, then you can, they're not going to change things because yeah. that, that belief is still there. So what I'm hearing you say is that being conscious of, we can't, you can't beat people over the head with a psychographic stick if there's something deeper that's actually stopping them from taking action. Exactly. Cool. Great. Well, I hope that's understood by our friend, the listener here. Um, I think we've, we've, we've gone into some, I hope, useful detail um, into what this means to, to look from, as you say, the outside in, not only the inside out, and how that can create a more effortless journey on, of entrepreneurship for, for our community. Well, thank you very much, Alan. Uh, your pleasure. Infinite consciousness oh, no, 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 has, no. Come, <laughs> Go has come in useful once again. And until next time, what, what is it we'd like to touch on next time? Is there anything that you think I'd be curious to explore as another conversation to whet the appetite of our listener? Ooh, that's putting me on the spot. Um, what would link to this? Um, maybe maybe what would be useful is for for people listening to this that kind of hear this as, as quite theoretical and they don't they can't yet imagine what a what it's like to be in involved in a business that has got all this stuff aligned discussing some of those and what those businesses feel like to work in mm. and and to run um, that, that have really got that and become much smoother and less stressful. Making so bringing that to life might be good. Some stories, some kind of case study yeah. based yeah. narratives around this. Yeah. Well, we'll put our thinking caps on. If you have some examples, then we'll try and talk about those. Brilliant. Yeah. Well, thank you very much, Alan. Uh, until Pleasure. next time. Um, yeah. Continue soldiering on and, and doing your good work. Thanks. You too. Yeah. Thanks for listening to this Happy Startup School community podcast. If you'd like to find out more about what we do, then check out our website, thehappystartupschool.com. 
If you believe that there's more to life and business than making money and waiting for retirement, and if you want to surround yourself with other like-minded change makers and entrepreneurs who want to make money, do good and be happy, then please come join our community. We offer courses, conversations and content that will help you follow your own path to success. Whether you're just starting out, struggling to grow your business or in a position of leadership and trying to work out what's next. There's no reason to face these challenges alone when you can be supported by people like you who want you to succeed. And from Friday the 13th to Sunday the 15th of September, we're hosting our Happy Startup Summer Camp. While we know that strictly isn't summer, the event also isn't just for startups. At its core, Summer Camp is about learning, play and friendship. We want to promote personal growth in business. We advocate holding our work lightly so that we can be more creative. And we know that we can't create impact on our own. We need to work with others that give us energy and support. As well as inspirational talks, we've got activities and experiences such as Blingo Bingo, Botanical Brew Making, Yoga, Mindful Raving, Saunas, Hot Tubs, Lake Swimming, Japanese Sword Fighting, Qigong Breathing and Dancing. Lots of dancing. To find out more about Summer Camp, please go to happystartupsummer.camp. Business doesn't have to be boring, and it definitely shouldn't be lonely. I hope you can find your tribe with us this September.